0: As we open God's Word this morning, as we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5, we'll be looking at this well-known section of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we'll be reading verses 17 through 26. Before we begin that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that today your name would be glorified, as we've already prayed that it would be glorified from one end of the earth to the other, from the rising of the sun to its setting, that we would confess in our own minds, and our own hearts, and our own lives, that you are God and that there is no other. And we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your atoning death. And we praise you that through your atonement for us, that you have accomplished redemption. And we praise you that today on the earth, today is the day of salvation. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be the one who applies that work of salvation to us today, even in our midst, and that you would enable us to live the lives of love that you call us to, that you would enable us to live lives which are even in the perfect reflection of that perfect life that you lived, Lord Jesus. For we ask it in your name. Amen. So as we read from Matthew chapter 5, I'd like you to listen to the parallels from what we heard from Genesis chapter 4. Because this may be in the back of Jesus' mind or in the front of Jesus' mind as he preaches this sermon, as we hear about brothers, and as we hear about murder, as we hear about men coming before the altar, and as we hear about judgment. So please do listen carefully because this is God's inspired, his inerrant, and his infallible word. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So it's a wonderful providence. I always find these as I get up to preach and I'm not really sure what's going to happen beforehand that as we read from the law and the gospel that these are the laws that we were reading from this morning and Jesus here is particularly explicating the law of you shall not murder and as we come to these words in the Sermon on the Mount these words can be very hard the parallels that we see between Moses as he gives the law from Mount Sinai are very obvious as Jesus is also on the mount explicating the law. And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that even Moses, the lawgiver, was trembling with fear when he was confronted with the law and with the holy presence of God. So we remember that Mount Sinai was on fire, and it was covered with darkness, with gloom, and with storm. And when God spoke the words of this law, the people begged that he would stop speaking. Jesus came to fulfill this law. He came to fulfill the law. And if we try and hear this law, apart from the coming of Jesus, we should be terrified. Because as Jesus is explaining, as he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, one of the main questions that we have to ask for ourselves for today is, well, how does Jesus fulfill the law, you shall not murder? Is it, it's, it seems like a strange question because is it as simple as Jesus never murdered anyone, never killed anyone? So one of the mistakes that we make as we sit and as we listen to the law is that we will try to minimize it and we will try to reduce it to its most simplistic forms, so that we can make the law safer. We can approach the law, really, we can approach God on our own terms. But one of the ways that Jesus has come to fulfill the law is that he reveals to us the true nature of the law. The law, even in all of its fear, as it's first exposed by Moses, Jesus comes and says, he exposes to us the depth And the breadth of the law, he places it further and further. He doesn't make it go further and further away from us. He presses it further and further into the inside of us, into our very hearts. Because in the kingdom of God, in the new covenant, that law is not written on tablets of stone, which are hidden away in the holy of holies, in the the ark. But that law is written on our hearts. It's in the very core of our being. And it's out of the overflow of our hearts that the mouth speaks. So rather than diminishing the law, as many in the church would teach today, it's rather than teaching how much less the law applies now with the coming of Jesus, it's how much more. Jesus Christ, he reveals the law in its depth, in its breadth, and even in the beauty of its perfection, in the beauty of its holiness, in his holiness. He reveals it in the perfection of love for God and in love for our neighbor as well. So it's my hope for us today that we look at God's Word, that we can see Jesus Christ. We can see Him in His glory. And we can see that even in His state of humiliation, how He perfectly kept that law, you shall not murder. And how I I hope as well that we can find our hope in Him, in His person and in his work. So I do have three points, which I believe are on your bulletin, uh, to help us understand how Jesus has come to fulfill the law, you shall not murder. And the first one is, that because Jesus has come to fulfill the law, you are a prophet. You are a prophet. So if you're not quick at filling in the blanks, I'll come back to that later too, or in a minute, I guess. And the second point, The second point is that because Jesus came to fulfill the law, Abel has found justice. Abel has found justice. And thirdly, because Jesus came to fulfill the law, I'll leave you with a question, and that is, where is your brother? Where is your brother? So for our first point, you are a prophet. You're a prophet. And... As Jesus explains the law, we learn from the text today as we think about the commandment, you shall not murder, that our words are prophetic in the sense that they are prophetic of our future destiny. Our words are prophetic in that they give a foretaste of our future destiny. Destiny. So we, we live in a culture, I don't hardly need to explain this, but we need to kind of unpack it a little bit and think about it. We live in a culture that has a complete disregard for the way they speak. And, of course, as the people of God, we know that we ourselves can often have a disregard for the way that we speak. I'm an eighth grade teacher. People believe that their words have no meaning, that their words exit their mouth, they go into the air, and they disappear, that our words are meaningless, really right? Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But Jesus says, no, hear the law. I tell you the truth. Jesus says that your words, my words, our words, they have everlasting significance. Sinful words are not temporal. They are everlasting and they will come under judgment. So, Our words and your words are prophetic in the sense that they do not allow you to deceive. They do not allow you to deceive. God, he already knows what's inside your heart. He knows you more thoroughly than you know yourself. But your words, they allow you and they allow everybody else around you to know what's in your heart. And your words may be a prophetic warning to you, as Jesus explains in this this text, that murder is not only something that we do with a knife or with a gun, but murder is something that we do with our words. See, the law is much heavier than we might think of it. Murder germinates in that soil of our hearts where no one can see it yet, but it germinates in anger, and that anger can grow into cursing, and that's where that word can be heard by everybody, and our words break out, and they're as obvious then as a gunshot, and Jesus uses two examples of those gunshots. One is raka, and the other is you fool, and I get it. We can read this text, and we can look at it, and we can Try and again make it safe. We try and define this text in a way, again, to minimize the law, like the Pharisees do. And we could say, Raka, well, I've never called anyone that, whatever that means, so I'm safe with that one. And you fool, well, that sounds like a minimal one, but I won't use that in my vocabulary anymore. But what Jesus is doing here, again, is exposing the depth and breadth of the law. And what he's not doing is he's not giving us a list of two of thou shalt not say words. (laughs) Jesus, he is giving us two entire categories of words. And so that that first category are words of condescension. They're words of condescension. So raka means empty, empty. It means useless. It may be a word that's in the sense of you good for nothing. So this is a category of words that looks down on someone else. And... This is so easy to do. Our words of condescension, Jesus says, they are prophetic. They're prophetic that you are subject to judgment, even judgment from the highest religious court, from the Sanhedrin. It's like you've been called judicially before the session, before the elders, then before the presbytery, and even before the synod for words of condescension. And that second category of words you fool. Those are words of contempt. They're words of contempt. It's not the specific word fool because the scriptures call certain people fools, as you know. And the word fool is even used to describe the preaching of the word. It's used to describe God in the sense that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. It's the same word from which we get the word moron. And it's probably not the worst curse that you can think of. It's certainly not the worst curse I think of within, the, or I can hear, at least in my job, within the first 60 seconds that I'm there, I think. <laughs> but when we speak of in contempt of our brothers, our words prophesy about our future, something very, very serious. And Jesus says, you are in danger of the fires of hell. So as we hear the law, this could be very heavy. Jesus teaches that that law is like a stethoscope. And he says, listen. He says, listen. If you hear those words of anger, if you hear those words of condescension, if those are the words that are coming through your fingers into whatever social media platform it is, what we post about the people that we consent we condescend against. Jesus says these are not words that call out To me from you, Jesus says, Those are words that call out to me against you. It's a heavy teaching. And as God warned Cain, He says, Sin is at your door. You must master it. So in Genesis 4, we read about Cain. And in 1 John chapter 3, John also talks about Cain. He says in verse 12 of chapter 3, he says, Do not be like Cain. This is still a warning for us, in the law and the gospel, right? This is still a warning for us in the New Testament. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And John then goes on in verse 15 to say, Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Hatred is murder. Jesus warns us that anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment. And John warns us, do not be like Cain, that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and does not have eternal life. See, God warns us in our sinful anger as he warned Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He says, why are you angry? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And Cain didn't listen, as we know. His anger grew, and he allowed that to express itself in the murder of his brother Abel. So as we think about prophetic words, we see from Genesis 4 that Abel was also a prophet. This is, it's a haunting text because Abel was a prophet even in his death because his blood calls out from the ground to God. God says, listen to Cain. He says, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. It's a haunting verse, quite literally, and it's hard to think about. It's hard to meditate on. And as we think about our own society, so many thousands of years, I mean, this was the death of the, this is the first human death. And as we think about the many murders that have occurred since then, as we hear the conviction that murder is even found in our own words, God says, your brother's blood calls out to me from the ground. What is it that Abel's blood said? What is it that Cain heard? And I think that what he heard was death. For sin. Death for sin. Abel's blood cries out for the justice of the law. See, in Genesis 4, God confronts Cain about murdering his brother. And then Cain comes back and he answers God in his arrogance. He says, this punishment is too much for me to bear. This punishment is not okay, God. And whoever finds me will then kill me. And we read this from the text and we think, yes, and they should. Your murder of your brother deserves your death. That's justice. But instead, in a strange way, God says, no, your blood will actually be avenged sevenfold on anyone who takes your life. And then God puts a mark on Cain so that no one will kill him. And there is a lot of ink that spilled over that question. Well, what is this, this mark of Cain? And does that mean that Cain then got away with murder? And I don't know exactly what the mark of Cain was, sorry, but I do know what it did. And what it did was it postponed judgment. It postponed judgment. And so in closing our first point, that our own words can be prophetic, Jesus warns us that there will be judgment. That judgment is postponed right now. Today is the day of salvation, praise God. That judgment may be postponed. But if you hear Jesus' warning, if you hear Jesus' warning, you can praise God. You can praise God because it shows us our need for Jesus Christ. It shows us our need as we hear the law. And so that brings us to the, our second point, And that is that because Jesus came to fulfill the law that Abel has found justice. Abel has found justice. So in Luke chapter uh, 11, we'll be looking at two parallels here. I don't know if you want to just jot this down uh, or if you want to turn in in the scriptures with me. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches that Cain actually does not get away with murder. So that's Dealing with our first question, Jesus teaches that no, Cain does not get away with murder. See, Jesus is speaking in Luke 11 to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the ones who knew the law, right? And who knew that the law was only external. They were the pretenders of the law. Jesus says to them in verse 47, he says, Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary yes i tell you this generation will be held responsible for it all so jesus is teaching that abel's blood will receive justice in this generation in which he was speaking and I'm not going to read the account about that prophet Zechariah, but Jesus is teaching, as it were, all the blood from A to Z of the prophets will be held on this generation. But Zechariah, you can read about that in Second Chronicles 24 sometime later today. He was murdered in the courtyard of the temple. And his last words as he lay dying were, May the Lord see this and call you to account. See, Zechariah's blood also calls out for justice. So in Luke 11, Jesus declares that this generation will be held responsible for the blood of Abel and for all of the prophets. So there are two questions, two more questions that come to my mind when I hear this teaching of Jesus. So Abel's blood will receive justice, but the question is, then why does Abel's blood have to wait these centuries and even these millennia until it finds justice in the generation of Jesus? And secondly, why would Abel's blood be charged, as it were, against a generation that didn't technically commit the crime? And so again, it can seem as if Cain got away with murder. So I also just want to note that I don't know where where you stand in, in terms of... Uh, your faith in the scriptures, but we can, we can be tempted to charge God here with some sort of injustice. And we always have to remember that when we are tempted to think that way that God is perfectly just. There's no injustice in God. So in keeping that in mind, let's think about these two questions. The first one is why did the, the blood of Abel, why did the murder of Abel have to wait for those centuries until Jesus' generation to find justice? And again, I'm sorry I don't I don't know everything, but my short answer to this is behold the patience of God. We should be able to step back and go, this is we, this is an incomprehensible patience. It's patience for murder that lasted for millennia. So you can say, wait a second, God has patience even for murderers? Yes, even for murderers. And you can say, wait a second, Cain belonged to the evil one. That's true, he did. So patience even for unrepentant murderers. Even for unrepentant murderers. Cain did not repent. He belonged to the evil one. And we, we know that because of the fullness revealed to us in the New Testament. But the scriptures testify this as well, that God is kind even to the ungrateful and wicked. And the scriptures testify clearly this, take hope in it, that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to come to faith in Jesus Christ. God is patient. Praise God. Or as we've already thought about this morning, when Adam sinned, That would have been the end of history if God was not patient. God is patient. So secondly, we ask the question, well, why would Abel's blood be charged against a generation that didn't technically commit the crime? And my short answer, again, to this is what Jesus teaches when he says this. Jesus says this, he says, fill up the measure of the sins of your father's. So we were looking at Luke chapter 11, where Jesus says this, and in the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, that's Matthew chapter 23, it's, I believe, the same account. Jesus says this in verse 31. He says, You testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then Jesus says to them, he says, Fill up, then, the measure of the sin of your fathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Jesus says, fill up then the measure of the sin of your fathers. So why would Abel's blood be charged against a generation that didn't commit that crime? And my simple answer to this is, well, behold the end of the patience of God. Behold the end of the patience of God. Jesus says, fill up. Up the measure. So we behold now the justice of God, and we behold now the wrath of God against sin when Jesus says, fill up the measure of the sin of your fathers. See, Jesus describes God's patience as the prophets did before him. It was like a measure or like a cup that fills and fills and fills, and to our amazement, can fill even for centuries and for millennia. But it hasn't yet reached the point of overflowing. But when it reaches that point, that is the end of the patience of God. And that is when you will see justice. As Jesus says, fill up the measure of the sin of your fathers. So how will they fill up the measure of their sin, of the sin of their fathers in this generation? And that is also in that unfathomable incomprehensible providence of God that just as Abel died at his brother's hand, Jesus would die at his brother's hands, at the hands of the people of Israel. And so what we see is we see where the patience of God and we see where the justice of God, where they meet together in the cross of Jesus Christ. The patience of God and the justice of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. So behold the patience of God. It's a patience that has lasted for hundreds and thousands of years. And behold the justice of God, the wrath of God against sin. Your brother's blood cries out to me. And Abel's blood is not the only blood, that cries out in the scriptures, is it? It's Jesus' blood also speaks. Jesus' blood also speaks. And remember that as we think about Moses trembling with fear, when he hears the law of God, we hear in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12 that we have not come to Mount Sinai, to that mountain that is covered in fire and smoke, but we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, And I'll read to you from Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. And you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men. To the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And here it is. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Hear it again. That you have come to Jesus and to his blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So how does Jesus' blood speak a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, been trying to argue a little bit that Abel's blood cries out for justice. Abel's blood cries out for the wrath of God for sin. You see, Jesus' blood speaks a better word because only Jesus' blood satisfies justice. Only Jesus' blood satisfies the penalty of the law for sin, There is nothing else in the universe that can satisfy the penalty of the law for sin. No other blood can satisfy justice. No other blood can satisfy the wrath of God for sin. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. So even as we think about God's judgment of Cain, or as we thought about God's Judgment, perhaps, on Adam. If God were to strike Cain down in that immediate justice, if God were to exercise no patience, which God is not in the least required to exercise, Cain's blood cannot satisfy the penalty of the law. Cain's blood can never satisfy the wrath of God for sin. This is... This is something that we must meditate on. If Cain were immediately struck down, his blood could not satisfy the wrath of God for sin, even in eternal hell. Because sin, as Jesus is teaching us here this morning, sin is not temporal. Sin is everlasting. Even sinful words are not temporal. They are everlasting. See, John Murray... He explains it this way. He says, The lost in perdition will everlastingly bear the unrelieved and unmitigated judgment due to their sins. The lost will eternally suffer in the satisfaction of justice, but they will never satisfy it. Christ satisfied justice. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice. That means that your sins are gone. In a way in which your sins could never be gone in hell. As far as the east is from the west, God tells us about our sin. They are gone. Christ satisfied justice. So the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because only the blood of Jesus can satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill that justice of the penalty of the law, that wrath of God in his body on the cross. And I have to pause and just say, You know, if you have not considered the fact that you will stand before this God, you will stand before him. It only takes a moment of reflection to realize that all of us, because of our sin, all of us will die. And we will stand before that judge of the universe. And either you will stand before him perfectly clothed in the satisfaction that Jesus has purchased for you, Or you will stand in your own sin. Or even the sins that we consider to be the smallest sins, the words that we speak, those will be an eternal weight upon our soul, upon our life for eternity. So I'll also say this, that Jesus, he freely invites you to come to him to be washed of your sins. Praise God that today is still the day of God's patience. His cup is not yet full. Praise God. So when you hear of that justice of God, when you hear that condemnation of the law, which falls on all of us in Jesus' words today, look to the cross and see justice satisfied by faith alone. So we come back to our main question, and that is how did Jesus Christ fulfill the law, you shall not murder? Did Jesus simply not kill anyone? No. Jesus came to lay down his life. That's why God sent him into the world. That is the expression of God. He sent his son into the world because he loved the world and because this offer can be made even to those who are his enemies today. In 1 John chapter 3, and verse 16, This is what the Bible teaches us. Marvelous verse to meditate on. John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And that brings us back to our point that Abel has found justice. Abel has found justice because Abel was justified by faith. Abel was justified by faith in Jesus Christ, which might sound a little strange because he lived so long before Jesus. But remember from Genesis 4 that God accepted Abel's offering, but he didn't accept Cain's. And again, a lot of people spill a lot of ink on this question, and we can say, well, why does God look on Abel's offering with favor, but he doesn't look with favor on Cain's offering? And ultimately, again, I I don't know a lot, but one thing is simple, and that is that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. He offered it by faith. And we read about that also in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, where God tells us that by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. See, it wasn't just the blood of Abel's death that was prophetic. It was Abel's life that was also prophetic because by faith, Abel offered his sacrifice. What does that mean? It means that by faith, Abel was looking forward to the one who would come and would satisfy God's wrath for sin. So Abel was justified by faith and Abel has found justice. That brings us to our last point. That because Jesus has come to fulfill the law, where is your brother? Where is your brother? So I'll look first a little bit to the past. And I'll say, think of it this way. Praise God that more than centuries ago, long before, long before Cain and Abel, in eternity past, that Jesus Christ was really asked a question somewhat like this, wasn't he? In the eternal covenant, when God the Father asked him, where is your brother? His blood cries out to me from the ground. He was asked that question about you, and I hope that you can put your name in that blank and say, where is your brother, Chris? Where is your brother? Where is your sister? His blood, her blood, cries out to me from the ground. And Jesus answered in perfect faithfulness and fidelity, perfect love for his father, and in perfect love for you. Jesus answers that question and he says, No, I am my brother's keeper. I am my brother's keeper. And I know that your perfect holiness and your righteousness requires his blood or her blood for their sin. But, Father, be patient. Be patient. Withhold your judgment. And accept my blood instead, because my sprinkled blood will speak a better word than the blood of them. It will speak a better word, not only than the blood of Abel, it will speak a better word than your own blood. Jesus would say that his blood would atone for all of your sins. And in fact, Jesus' blood is so wonderful that it is sufficient to offer reconciliation To the whole world. And as I've already said, even to you who are still dead in your sins, you are invited. So how does Jesus fulfill that law, you shall not murder? It's because he offers you eternal life. He offers you eternal life. In eternity past, he's done this. We can also look at this question, where is your brother, in terms of the present See, because Jesus' explanation of that law in Matthew chapter five it searches us with that question too, right? Where is your brother? And our words are prophetic to one degree about our future. and here's what we know as as you who have accepted Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for your sins, you know that new life in Jesus Christ it is not one which is one of anger. It's not one which is of cursing. In other words, it's not one which is of murder. That is the language of those who belong to the evil one. But new life is the new life of repentance. It's renouncing our sin. It's new life of love. As we now speak not words of hatred and cursing and murder, but we can speak words of love. We can speak words of life. We can speak words of reconciliation we can invite other people to new life through faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus he explains what that new life looks like in Matthew chapter 5 doesn't he because we read in verse 23 of our text Jesus says even if you are offering your gift there in worship like Cain and like Abel if you are there before the altar of God and there you remember that your brother has something against you, you can leave your gift there in front of the altar, Jesus says, and you can go now and you can be reconciled to your brother. That, reconcil- that reconciliation that we have with God the Father, perfect reconciliation, we also are to have with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Loving God and loving our brother and sister in Christ. Two tablets of the law. And Jesus goes on in verse 25 to say that even if your adversary, we'll be talking about this tonight, even if your enemy is taking you to court before the Sanhedrin, before the highest ecclesiastical courts, before that presbytery or the synod, where you expect that you will be vindicated because of your good name, that you'll be exonerated before men. Jesus says, no, humble yourself. And be reconciled, even to your adversary. And now, while you are with him on the way, lest you find out before the judge and the court that you're not as innocent as you may think yourself, and you'll be humbled until you pay the last penny. Scripture tells us clearly that as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Live at peace with all men. Because even when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So First John 3 says, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We'll be thinking about this tonight. That we should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So there's one, I think, last way I'd like to think about this. Where is your brother? And that is in the future as we think again about how did Jesus come to fulfill the law, and that's Jesus came to fulfill the law you shall not murder through resurrection, through resurrection, through our future hope. See, Jesus Christ had authority to lay down his life for us, but he also had authority to take up his life again. And Jesus teaches that that is our future hope. Jesus teaches this in John chapter 6, in verse 39, he says, And this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. For it is my father's will that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says this two times for emphasis. Jesus came to fulfill the law. You shall not murder because He is the one who gives life. He is the one who gives life. So on the last day, all those who look forward to the coming of Jesus in faith, beginning with Abel, they will be called forth from their graves. And all of those who live in this period of time after the cross, during the day of God's continued patience, all of us who look back on the finished work, of Jesus Christ in faith, we will be called from our graves to eternal life. And that is the day that Jesus will have fully and finally fulfilled that law, you shall not murder, because there will be no more death. There will be no more death. Jesus has come to fulfill that law, you shall not murder, because Jesus came to destroy death. So, in closing, Praise God that because Jesus came to fulfill the law, your words are prophetic. Words of death to death. But new life in Christ, these are words of life and love to eternal life. And that because Jesus came to fulfill the law, the life of Abel has been vindicated and it will be vindicated. Abel was justified by faith. And that is our invitation to be reconciled to God. And because Jesus came to fulfill the law, where is your brother? Well, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we asked before we started that you would, by your spirit, be with us. And I pray that that would be the case. And I pray, Lord, that even as as much of a mustard seed as it may be in our hearts, that love that we have, we confess, Lord, that we can only love because you first loved us. And that if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. And Lord, we, we have to confess that the times that we have hated our brothers with our words. But we also know that through faith in you, that you came to die for sin. And I pray, Lord, that more and more in our own lives that you would help us to grow in our love for you because of who you are and because of what you have done, the accomplishment of redemption through faith in Jesus Christ, but that you would also help us to love our brother because whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we praise you, too, that that language of heaven has broken into this world, cursed by sin and death. And so, again, Holy Spirit, if you don't give us ears to hear, if you don't give us a heart to understand, we cannot hear. So please help us to hear. Please forgive us of our sins. Please help us to take our words as seriously as you do. And please work in this generation, because we are a people of unclean lips. And we do ask it all for your glory in the name of Jesus Amen.